Hello and welcome to another Tales from the Ruther Library, a podcast created at the Walter P. Ruther Library at Wayne State University in a little town I like to call Detroit, Michigan. I am Dan Galadner. I'll be your host today, along with our ever-present Troy, the mouth, Eller English. How's, how's, how's your mouth doing, Troy? It's, it's getting there. Yeah. <laughs> Troy, Troy had a little oral surgery, so we, we've all been making fun behind her back. Mm-hmm. Thank yeah. you. No Thank problem. You. So supportive. We are here. We support each other very well. Oh, sure. Yeah, we too. Um, in today's podcast, we interview Yvonne Padilla Rodriguez, who was named by Glamour Magazine as one of the top 10 college women of 2014. Um, her dissertation examines how U.S. labor law has marginalized migrant agricultural child laborers from the Southwest, providing new insights about the contours of citizenship and immigration exclusion in the 20th century. So currently, she is visiting a, a visiting scholar at the UC Berkeley Center for Latinx Policy Research. Her backstory is incredible, and to use one of the familiar phrases that we've been using this year, she's badass. Born in Los Angeles... Her undocumented parents gained amnesty in 1986. They then moved to Las Vegas. And around her junior year of high school, she found herself homeless. And then, then later, becoming an Ivy League student at Columbia University. You can read it all in Teen Vogue, you know, that magazine where we get all the greatest, coolest news nowadays. Um, But here's a little bit of her timeline. Struggling to pay tuition at the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, Yvonne was thinking of dropping out. But a friend told her about this Dr. Pepper scholarship sweepstakes, and she entered, got accepted to be part of a competition to throw as many footballs through a hole in a large Dr. Pepper can at uh, one of the NCAA football national games, right, in Atlanta. Ninety bucks in her pocket. She goes to Atlanta. She wins. And with the money, her life trajectory completely changed. I mean, after graduating from the University of Nevada, Las Vegas, she headed to New York City and uh, is a PhD candidate at Columbia University. While she was there, um, she worked as a research assistant for Legal Aid Society in New York City. So look her up, folks. She is going to be making lots of changes in the future. Remember her name. But first, Troy and I would like to wish everybody a happy holiday, a happy new year. Anything else? Season's greetings. And a season's greetings. So off to the interview. Hi, Yvonne. Hi, Dan. How are you doing? I'm doing well. How Thank are you, you so much for doing our podcast. Thank really you so much for having it. me. I was so excited when um, I got the email to leave with the invitation to come be on it. Yay. Okay. <laughs> All right. Um, of course, I did my research on you, and <laughs> your backstory is incredible. So if you don't mind sharing with us how you came up to this point. Sure. I um, I really appreciate you saying that. I think it's taken me a lot of years into my adulthood, I think, to reckon with some of the things um, from my childhood, but it's also obviously become a huge source of inspiration for the research and the career path that I've taken. Um, 
I think like a lot of other academics and scholars, my interest in immigration history and in studying children in particular um, has been mostly personal. And I think for me, it's twofold. One, it's based in my own lived experience of having grown up with undocumented parents. And to this day, my family who lives in the U.S. is still pretty mixed status. My parents, fortunately, were able to regularize because of the 1986 uh, immigration uh, legislation, the, Ramnes the Reagan amnesty. Um, but growing up, even though I was born in the U.S. and I was a, a U.S.-born citizen, I often felt that my own citizenship was sort of denuded. Obviously, as a kid, I didn't think about it in, in this language. Now that I'm older and I've reflected back, I think about how my citizenship, I felt, even when I was pretty young, that it didn't mean as much as the citizenship that other kids had who had documented parents, because I grew up with the same fear of authority, of police, of immigration, of even... Um, um, formal U.S. institutions like hospitals, for mm -hmm. example, because I was terrified of anybody who appeared to be some kind of like U.S. official because I was worried about being separated from my parents, them being deported. Um, so there was that side of the personal motivation. But I also have uncles who uh, came to the U.S. and immigrated here specifically as young people, either as children or as teenagers, to work on farms. Um, right. And so I, I grew up sort of like casually knowing about some of this, some of these stories and these histories in my family. Uh, but once I got to college and I started to learn more and more about both the history of uh, Latinx people in the U.S. and about um, Latin American immigrants in the U.S., that I wanted to kind of make sense of the sort of structural obstacles that my family confronted um, and how historically that sort of tells us a story about contemporary immigration problems as they relate to children specifically, either the U.S.-born children of immigrants or undocumented kids who maybe came here years ago or who are coming now and showing up at the border and are becoming vulnerable to rights violations. Right. So you saw history as that avenue to tell the story. Yes. That's very interesting. Instead of going policy side or anything like that, you saw history. Yes. I, I get a Yeah. I, I feel like often that sparks conversation because I think uh, when I was growing up, I told people that I was interested in law constantly. So people were like, this is obvious. You should go to law school. Um, but I don't know that I had like the academic language to explain that I was interested in legal history. Mm -hmm. And I was interested specifically in figuring out sort of like the legal, so I'm in, I am interested in policy, but I'm more interested in like figuring out the legal and policy origins of particular problems because I think that tells us a lot about both how we got to a certain problem, but also um, how we can sort of approach it. Because I don't think that we can approach it if we don't have the long view. Otherwise, I think we have misconceptions about how new a certain problem is, whether it's a problem related to labor exploitation or child migration, um, and we don't get that. The, the longer time frame. Right. It, you're able to tell the story. Mm -hmm. And history has the story for us to tell. So we can relate mm -hmm. in one way or another. All right. So why don't you tell us about what is your thesis? What is your research? Why are you here? What are you doing <laughs> research on? <laughs> uh, my, I'm here at the Ruther from, well, I'm a PhD candidate at Columbia, um, but I'm actually coming from Berkeley, where I've been doing a lot of my dissertation research in the last year, uh, because so many of my archives are in the Southwest, either in California or Texas. But of course, there are documents here, like in at the Ruther, um, in, in D.C., um, and in a few other places. Um, the dissertation is essentially a story of... Uh, Latinx children who crossed borders for farm work. 
essentially. So it's both about U.S. citizen, mostly Mexican kids throughout the 20th century, but also undocumented Mexican kids who crossed both international and domestic state borders. In the case of the U.S. citizen kids, they were crossing a lot of state borders to follow seasonal crop schedules. And once I got into the archive, I was sort of following the aftermath of the implementation of the first federal child labor ban is I got to graduate school and I wrote this paper on these immigrant child laborers because those were the archives in New York City and that's what I wrote a seminar paper on. Uh, But once I discovered that there was this federal child labor ban, but knowing my own family history and knowing that like there are still kids working on farms even today, um, I wanted to sort of figure out how that even, how that workforce came to be, how that it, how that was even possible. Um, and I discovered that, I mean, I'm sure probably the listeners know and, and you know about the domestic migrants who got a lot of attention, a lot of sympathy from lawmakers, from journalists, from researchers, um, from being for being displaced from like their small family farms and having to, to migrate. So they were the domestic migrants. But the language that was used for most of the 20th century about the domestic migrants paralleled the language about the international migrants pretty closely. Um, in some really interesting and like curious ways, the domestic migrants, despite having U.S. citizenship, were often called stateless and forgotten uh, because they didn't have legal access to a lot of the services of the welfare state, including the legal right to education, mm-hmm. because they were technically legal non-residents to the places they were migrating to. So this often affected a lot of domestically migrant U.S. citizen Mexican children whose parents were immigrants, who some of them, the parents, um, didn't have national. U.S. citizenship. So this is a story of the mixed status families who followed seasonal crop schedules with U.S. citizen children, but also the few cases that I've been able to document of undocumented Mexican child laborers who at the same time in the post-war period, most notably, were crossing borders to join Bracero parents, undocumented parents who had come to the U.S. Um, in uh, during and after the war, uh, and who ended up also working on farms and were discovered by Border Patrol agents by uh, commission state studies that were studying transient children, as they were called, or unattached children. But a lot of them, some of them were these undocumented kids. Interesting. So we were talking earlier this week, and you call these the invisible children of America, basically, (laughs) in the sites. But for after after the Fair Labor Standards Act was passed, 1938, right? Mm -hmm. Supposedly, child labor was eradicated. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. But you're saying you're saying there's these invisible children all over still being well yes. even today. But you're studying the history. But even today, you still have this child labor issues going on. What kind of child labor are we seeing that you're looking at after 1938 and up to the point of your research? So I, um, in the very beginning of starting the dissertation research, I discovered that this 1938 federal child labor ban exempted agricultural work for kids after school hours from its provisions. So if you were a young kid, there was no minimum age or maximum hours protections for kids who worked after school or even before school. So if you weren't legally required to be in school, which a lot of these migrant kids were not, because since they were legal non-residents of the communities in which they came to harvest crops, they were technically exempt also from compulsory school attendance laws. So they were totally shut shut out of the law. This 1938 law gets amended very few times over the 20th century, which is part of the story my dissertation tells. Um, And part of the reason for that is because the agricultural lobby is so powerful um, that a lot of advocates 
athletes who created even these huge campaigns, publicity campaigns, to talk about how farm work could be just as exploitative as factory work, which was the the real um, inspiration for the federal child labor ban. Um, They couldn't overcome the power of the agricultural lobby. So the 1938 agricultural provisions of the federal child labor ban, they get amended in 1949, but the amendment is, is like a really small change in language that tried to protect these migrant kids in particular so that they could access school. So they took away that language about being, um, well, they sort of amended the language about being uh, legally required to be in school. But the reason that it didn't work to get kids out of the fields and into school was because of these state residence laws that stripped them of local and state citizenship, despite some of them having national U.S. citizenship. So it wasn't then until the 1970s, until 1974, I believe, that the first real minimum age law gets included. But even then, it was 12 years old, and there are still all kinds of exemptions. Like um, if the farm was small enough, for example, if it didn't meet this 500-day man test, if, it, if the farm itself didn't require 500 man-day calendars, uh, calendar days, um, then the children were exempt from that part of the agricultural provisions. If your parents provided written consent and when your parents are making poverty wages or if your parents were undocumented, likely your kid might be working in the field alongside you. Um, And there have been some exposés, there have been some um, newspaper articles, for example, that note that in immigration raids, for example, there was one in 2008 in Iowa, in Postville, I believe, where like 400 people um, were detained at a at like a, an agricultural processing plant, and there were kids that were found in that raid. Um, just a few years ago, there was like a, a bipartisan Senate investigation of um, the practices that ORR, the Office of Refugee Resettlement, uses to uh, connect unaccompanied children to their sponsors in the U.S. once they're to be released. Um, And one of these studies found that there were kids who were accidentally uh, handed over to Ohio egg traffickers, like on an egg farm. Um, There was like a, a PBS documentary about this. So there are like sporadic kind of investigations about this. The Human Rights Watch has done one of mm-hmm. these. Um, the show that Samantha B has, the, the talk show, she did a very small segment too on the persistence of agricultural child labor into the present day. There was a newspaper article this summer in Pacific Standard about the kids who, who pick our, our crops. Um, and some of them are undocumented. And they're still young children too. Yes, they're pretty young. All right. So you mentioned that there's a... a f- Real amendment was finally made to the FLSA in the 70s. Yes. Right. So this didn't wasn't the kindness of the agricultural business. This no. wasn't the kindness of the government either. It had to be some pressure after um, after the Murrow uh, documentary came out in 1960. Um, what was that? Harvest of Shame. Yes. So that kind of had to like make a, a, a impact on the public. But you, you, I'm sure there was like other organizations yes. pushing for a change in the fields for these children. Yes, I think you're absolutely right that this was certainly not the generosity of agricultural capitalists because I think to this day, and that Samantha Bee um, segment, for example, interviewed growers, some of them who, when you listen to them, they'll talk about how they justify having child laborers on their farms. What do they say? What do they um, say? They often say that they're like providing them with an opportunity. The work isn't actually that hard. Um 
things like that. But we heard that 100 years ago. Yes, absolutely. Um, and I mean, these are kids who like th- there have been documented. I mean, agriculture is considered today the most hazardous occupation for children. Overall, I think it's the third most hazardous next to mining and construction or something. Um Kids are exposed to pesticides. Uh, children who work in farms often have much higher dropout rates from school than other kids do. So um, their opportunities for social mobility are incredibly limited. Um, so speaking of that, the the people who were pushing for a lot of anti-child labor reform were actually teachers who in really, really innovative ways were sort of conceiving of educational policy and practice as anti-child labor reform. Because in their mind, they figured that if they couldn't beat the really politically and economically powerful agricultural capitalists, that they could try going the educational route in order to get kids into school or ensure their educational access. Um, So even before, actually, even before Harvest of Shame, but certainly in the few years immediately after, there were a lot of efforts to create special educational programs for kids who cross borders to work on farms specifically. Eventually, that culminated into the 1965 Migrant Education Program. And in the 70s, there was a sort of companion program that was specifically for the kids who went from Mexico to California to follow their parents and to follow the crop schedules, the Binational Migrant Education Initiative. Um, but the the sort of roots of those programs as anti-child labor reform in a way um, were conceived in like local school districts, teachers mm. who wanted to provide bilingual and bicultural education to these kids who were being discouraged from staying in school and instead uh, chose collectively themselves and with their parents to go to work when they would go to school and they couldn't understand their teachers. The kids made fun of them or made racist comments towards them. Um, one of the most celebrated labor leaders of U.S. history, Cesar Chavez, was himself a domestically migrant agricultural child laborer. When his parents were displaced from their farm in Arizona, they migrated to California and he worked the migratory stream as a kid and he left school very early on. And there's like an oral history that Jack Levy did of him. And in there, you can read about um, the ways that like other kids and teachers treated these like domestically migrant Mexican children um, and how that sort of like discouraged them from staying in in school. So teachers created all these innovative summer school programs, transfer records, because the lack of transfer records was often used as rationale to exclude migrant children from school. They said, well, if you don't come with your with documentation from your previous school, we can't admit you. So they'd come up with all kinds of reasons to keep these kids out of school. Eventually, both the migrant education program and for the kids who were undocumented, the 1982 Plyler v. Doe decision that the Supreme Court handed down, handed down was what secured the legal right to education for both the domestically migrant and the internationally migrant uh, Latino youth. All right, so you're talking about all this documentation of like, but teachers doing materials. I mean, you're obviously here looking at the farm workers' materials. Yes. It's like, um, how, what, what other avenues are you taking to 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 document these, as you say, the invisible children on mm-hmm. on the fields? It seems like there's there's no government records. There's there's no there's nothing really basically on what you can look at to document who, what they've what they've done, where they are, and and who they are. So I should say, if if I've implied that there are no government records, um, that there's 
there are sort of ways to look at the government records and find the kids. So in a way, there there are some government studies. The, the U.S. Children's Bureau, for example, they used to care a lot about the children who were on farms. And so their records at... Um, at uh, the National Archives and Records Administration, um, they have some stuff about these kids. And often if you read very, very closely, you'll find out about how their migration across borders was really similar as the kids who crossed the international border to come to the U.S. to work on farms. Because I'm sure you know about the the, what they call, I guess, like human smugglers, the mm-hmm. coyotes that help guide both immigrants and um, labor mig- migrants across the international U.S.-Mexico border to come to the U.S. But those coyotes were also, they also had a domestic counterpart. And that domestic counterpart often guided the domestically migrant Mexican families and these unattached youth who were really unaccompanied child laborers who were going across state lines to work on farms. And the coyotes did a lot of the same thing that the international ones did, the the domestic ones. They, like, abandoned kids on the route. They um, cheated them out of their wages. Um, They had all these really, like, unscrupulous kind of practices. Um, But the U.S. Children's Bureau is, is one of them. The INS records are notoriously very difficult to get through and to identify relevant material. Um, I think there, there's all kinds of problems associated with it, missing records. Um, the They're very complicated and convoluted, if I'm being honest. But if you're lucky, you will find instances in there about um, – like Border Patrol correspondence, for example, during the quote-unquote wetback era when there was a huge surge of undocumented migration in the aftermath of the implementation of the Bracero program of kids who would come to the U.S. to join uh, parents, undocumented parents or Bracero parents. Uh, Sometimes they would employ, for example, informants to help them figure out where families and kids were being recruited from in Mexico to bring them to the U.S., oftentimes to work specifically on farms. Uh, And you'll find sometimes investigations of Border Patrol agents who find undocumented teenagers on farms. So if you look very, very closely, there are government records about them, but it's not always clear that the government records are about the kids specifically. I think that that's largely a problem of the archive. That's a methodological problem that a lot of childhood historians in particular have to deal with because the people who leave behind records and archives are adults, not not children. Right. right. Um, but I have found one really interesting uh, letter that a migrant Mexican girl wrote to President FDR about the child labor laws in the U.S. And she asked him specifically to clarify them for her and that she wanted to know what they were because she wanted to go to school. But her family was so poor that they relied on the extra wages of their siblings. So she wanted to know if her her brothers could work on farms lawfully. Um, So you will sometimes get, you know, these you know, one piece of information that comes directly from the kid, but otherwise you sort of have to look at the researchers or the government agencies that cared about the migrants, quote unquote, and often those are the adults, but a lot of them had their children either with them or join them. So you will find traces of the children if you look really closely. And also, okay, I have to ask a question. So you are here at the Ruther Library. Mm Mm-hmm doing your research, using the farm workers collection. And I was about to say, is like I'm sure you're finding more of a narrative within these kind of group 
collections. Mm -hmm. So what collections have you been using mm -hmm. besides the farm workers? And you can tell us about these collections and also where you also you've gone. You mentioned you've been in the West Coast, you've been in D.C. Mm -hmm. We always like to know where researchers have been digging up this, these wonderful nuggets of information. Yeah, the archives here in the Ruther Library are incredible. Some of the documents that I've come across have made me realize there, there's potential for all kinds of projects in this. I mean, this project that I'm working on about the kids in particular is is just, you know, one that could be done through these papers, but there are really so many. Uh, so yes, I'm working with the farm workers' papers, but the, uh, the sort of records that come under the umbrella of the UFW papers um, are the ones that I'm working with. So um, I've looked at a lot of the migrant ministry records because the religious community was really interested in helping improve the standard of living for these families because of the kids in particular. So they set up like Bible schools, daycare centers, they set up all kinds of programs to make sure that these kids had adequate child welfare services when the federal government was not providing them. So often it was provided by private or religious organizations. So the migrant ministries, um, the individual papers of people affiliated with the UFW, like Ronald Taylor, who was a journalist who actually wrote a book about agricultural child labor in the 1970s. His personal notes and his interview records are here. Um, and often he will have like individual sort of notes with the young people that he spoke to and some of them will note specifically I came from a certain region of Mexico I came from the interior I came from uh, a border town and I've followed the migratory stream and he talked with some of these young people he talked with a lot of the U.S. citizen migrant kids too um there are also, despite the fact that these are labor records, there's quite a bit of stuff in here about the migrant education program, in large part because I really think that these migrant ministry programs are sort of the precursors to the federal education policy that became the 65 um, migrant education program. So there is a ton of, of material here. And outside of this, Yes, I've done research in, in California. When it comes to the Plyler v. Doe material, for example, all of that is at Stanford because Malduff was one of the legal aid societies that litigated the case, the Mexican-American Legal Defense and Education Fund. Um, the papers of the journalist and, I guess, oral historian, in a way, who um, work with Cesar Chavez. His papers are at Yale. And there you'll find some interesting letters that Cesar Chavez wrote where he talks about who he conceives as the farm worker. And he talks a little bit about, about kids and women in there. Um, there's actually some documents, too, that um, relate to the UFW material that are in Southern California at, like, a social science research library um, in L.A., actually. Uh, oh, I think I'm, I know you're talking about. Yeah, I could be misstating their name a little bit, but, but yeah, they, Southern California yeah, Library. They're, they're, they're near Watts or so. Anyway, I know what you're talking about. Yes, yeah. I, I'm sure you do. Um, but they have some like, they have unprocessed UFW material. Um, they have they have a lot of cool stuff there. Oh, and one more note um, about Yale, the Beinecke, where they have the the material from the journalist who wrote that oral history about, about Cesar Chavez. They also have the photographs of John Lewis from the... Uh, the great boycotts um, and a lot of kids appear in those photographs mm -hmm. too which is why it's like incredible to me that even if you look at you know academic studies and monographs or books about the UFW very little in there talks about kids and yet 
there were um, kids appear in all of the like strike and protest images, but there was also, and I think there are also, I, there are, there were anti-child labor campaigns within the UFW. Um, there were like posters that were made up to uh, get the public behind the farm worker cause by drawing attention to the persistent problem of agricultural child labor uh, that that um, continue to afflict farm working families. Right. All right, once you get this done, what is your future plans for this? This is what mm. your work is 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 on territory. It has not been really done before in research, heavy research like you're doing right mm-hmm. now. So, what do you how do you envision what you what you're going to do next with this kind of research? Mm. I have a lot of aspirations that I think are maybe unconventional for academics and for academia. I came to graduate school not totally sure that I wanted to stay. And I think part of the reason is because I want to find applications for my historical scholarship. And I sort of wish that in the future, more historians will be interested in engaging the public and trying to use our research and trying to translate it for other audiences such that it's not something that's only being read by an insular community, but also by the communities that are affected by this and by the people who have power to make changes related to these problems. So I see that there are some academics who do some of this work from within academia, but I'm also open to pursuing non-academic tracks, uh, possibly at like a research institute or a think tank that might give me leeway to still do historically informed policy-related research um, that might have an impact on modern day problems related to child migration, to labor exploitation, to contemporary labor trafficking of children on farms. Um, I I would hope that now there's a, a hunger for more and more like historically informed research because I'm sure you read the news, you see what the president says or other lawmakers even, and often they refer to immigration history to justify policy decisions um, in very poor ways in my opinion, but um, I think that there is a space for historians who are interested in finding applications for historical research in a modern day policy setting. So my hope is whether I do this from inside or outside of academia, that I can try to use either my research directly or as a sort of uh, source of inspiration or a way to inform um, the way that policy solutions are used to address immigration problems. Well, I can't wait to see what happens. (laughs) Thanks for joining us. Thank you. I appreciate it. This is fun. Yeah. Tales from the Ruther Library is a production of the Walter P. Ruther Library of Labor and Urban Affairs at Wayne State University, coming to you from the heart of the Cultural Center of Detroit, Michigan. The producers of Tales from the Ruther Library are Dan Glogner and Troy Eller-English. Special assistance from the Ruther Podcast Collective, including Bart Bilmer, Elizabeth Clemens, Megan Courtney, and Paul Neerink. Of course, this podcast could not be done without the research and the support of the entire Ruther Library staff. To learn more about the Ruther Library, or if you have any questions, please visit our website at www.ruther.wayne.edu. Thanks for listening. Say goodbye, Dan. Goodbye, Dan.
Stop smiling, Dan. <laughs> there is no fun, only podcast. <laughs> No cussing this time, though. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, you can. I don't care. Yeah. I think it's the built-up anger. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I'm probably too honest. <laughs> Which we like here. We always say, it was like, well, we're, we're labor. We're supposed to cuss, right? <laughs> uh, right. That's how you get out all the frustrations. Yeah. Anti-capitalist frustrations. Exactly. <laughs> And sometimes I see like Labor Day op-eds about these pictures and about how they helped eradicate child labor in the U.S. And I look at those op-eds and I'm like, I can't. <laughs> it's like, um, excuse me. Yeah. We still have some things going on here.